This morning we're going to continue in our series that Jesus is, and we've been talking about the way that we can fill that in with a variety of different things, things that we've learned, things that we've experienced, and there's lots of ways that one can answer that statement, Jesus is what? Today we're actually going to be looking at the truth, the reality that Jesus is love. Now, I want to say really quick, just so you guys know, a week from Friday, I'm having my vocal cord surgery. Um, for those of you who have not been around, I used to be the worship pastor here, now I'm an associate, now I'm leaving. So, uh, <laughs> it's, it's kind of like that, but uh, our family's moving to China. Uh, anyway, if you didn't know about that, surprise. Um, but I, I had a vocal cord granuloma. It's not nodes. For those of you who are Pitch Perfect fans, I'm, it's not a node, it's something different. But I have to have that surgically removed a week from Friday. This might be the last chance I have to share with you guys uh, because I won't be able to talk for a while after that. And so I'm going to be honest with you. I kind of loaded this one pretty heavy. Um, I've been at this church for 12 years now. I love this church. I love the people of this church. And there's been so many things over the last 12 years as a worship pastor that I've wanted to say to you, but it's never really been my position. I'm not the senior pastor, I'm not the, the teaching pastor, I, I, I was the music pastor, and now as the associate, I've been able to preach more, and it's been wonderful, but I have so many things I've wanted to share with you. And so this one today, I'm going to be honest, I've loaded it, um, because it might be the last chance I have to share it with you, and so um, I hope that we can um, enjoy it together. You know, there's, there's so much that can be said about love. I think that we all have an idea of what love is. We think we know what love is. We have probably experienced love in one way or another, or so we think. And I'm sure you've probably heard a lot of sermons on the topic of love. Now, usually those sermons involve the Greek words for love, right? We talk about agape and phileo and eros and the lesser discussed storge, all these Greek words for love and what they mean and how they mean different things. And I'm sure you've heard that, but I, I have to tell you that the more theologians and linguists are studying the Bible, the more they realize that really there isn't as much difference between those words as they thought. Now, there is a difference between the definition of the words, but when the transcribers were transcribing the Bible, they weren't very specific in which word they used. They actually would just put one in. And so we've made a huge deal about this because we read the Scripture and we say, oh, what, what word for love is that because it's going to make, make a different meaning. Well, it's true if, in fact, it was intentional. But they're finding more and more now that it was a little bit more indiscriminate than that. And in fact, they would just write one of the words of love down. But it's still cool to take a look at those words and to look at their definition and to see what they mean and how they could change the meanings of what's being said in Scripture. But we're not going to do that today. Because today we're not going to look at this from a language perspective, but we're going to look at it through a theological perspective. Now, if you weren't with us when I preached a few times ago, uh, we talked about theology, and we had a working definition for what theology is, and this is what we said. Christian theology is reflecting on and articulating the God-centered life and beliefs that Christians share as followers of Jesus Christ, and it is done in order that God may be glorified in all Christians are and do. And so I hope that many of you today are followers of Christ and I hope that you also would agree with me that you are a fellow theologian. 
So we're going to look at this from a theological perspective. Now, believe it or not, spring started this week. I know, and we got more snow this week than we had pretty much all year, but spring started. So we're probably thinking about warmer weather and vacations and beaches and pools and things like that, which works out great because today we're going to be wading in some pretty deep water. So we're going to start this morning by talking about who is God. And then we're going to transition a little bit and go a little bit deeper And we're going to talk about the Trinity. And lastly, we're going to look at an amazing story from the book of John. And we're going to try to tie it all together. So we're going to start with what I believe is a very simple question this morning. Who is God? Now I know you're probably thinking, that doesn't sound like a simple question. In the category of questions that are simple, I, I would not put that on the list. But really, the great news is, is everything that we need to know about God is found right in the Bible. Now, this is the part where we're going to start getting a little deep. So everybody hang tough with me. Is everybody ready? Okay. Now, the Bible offers traits for the character of God. We usually call these attributes. We call them the attributes of God. But when we're describing God, it's actually better to call them perfections. But why? Attributes are qualities that are inherent to a subject. In other words, they distinguish or analyze the subject. And though the terms we are going to discuss do describe God, they don't only describe him, but they are perfected in him. They define him. The word attribute is something that is ascribed to something or someone, but the traits of God are the very definition of those traits. So we could say that someone is kind or nice or generous or friendly, and that describes a trait in a person. But when we'd say the same about God, it actually is defining that word. He defines those traits. They're not attributed to him because they don't just describe him. He is the very revelation of what that word means. So the word perfections is actually more fitting when we're talking about the character and the traits of God. If you want to say attributes, it's okay. I won't hold it against you. Now, the other thing about these attributes is this. They're usually broken up into two different categories. One is called the communicable attributes of God. The other is called the in communicable attributes of God. Communicable attributes are attributes as his created beings that we also can possess as God possesses. The incommunicable attributes or perfections only God possesses. So let's go through a few of each one so you can get an idea of what I'm talking about. Some of the incommunicable perfections of God. These are perfections, qualities, attributes of God that only he possesses. Eternity. Psalm 92 says that God is from everlasting to everlasting. He is eternal. Immutability, this means unchanging. God is unchanging. James 1.17 says that every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above. Coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation, no shifting shadow. God is immutable. He does not change. What about omnipotence? You've probably heard this one. Omnipotence means all-powerful. Genesis 17:1. God refers to himself as the Lord God Almighty. God is all-powerful. What about omnipresence? It means God's everywhere. Psalm 139, 7-11 says, And where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? 
If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. If I take wings on the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand will lay hold of me. If I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me and the light around me will be night, even the darkness is not dark to you and the night is as bright as day. Darkness and light are alike to you. God is everywhere. And lastly, we've probably heard this one, um, omniscience. It means God's all-knowing. He's omniscient. He knows everything. John 3.20 says, And whatever our hearts condemn us, for God is greater than our hearts, and he knows all things. God knows all things. Those are just some of the incommunicable attributes or perfections of God. These are things that only God possesses. We cannot be eternal. We cannot be unchanging. We know, we know that we're not unchanging. We're not all-powerful. We're not everywhere. These are just attributes or perfections in God. However, we can have some of the attributes that the Bible talks about that God has. These are called the communicable attributes. Now, there are many of these, but when I was working through my master's degree in counseling, we focused primarily on what we call the RREVPS, which stands for the relational, rational, emotional, volitional, physical, and spiritual Relational meaning that we have the ability, like God, to have and maintain relationships. And as I always tell you guys, before God created, he what? Yeah, that's right. He related. Before God created, he related. We are are relational beings. We also have the ability to be rational. We have that ability, though sometimes we don't utilize that ability. But we have the ability to be rational. We can think rationally. We're emotional. We have the ability to be emotional. Like God, anger, mercy, and even hate, and of course also love. It is important on that one to mention, though, quickly, because we don't have time to talk about it in length. God does not react and respond irrationally, emotionally. Do you know what I mean? So God, when it says in the Bible that God got angry, it's not like when your kid does the same thing a hundred times and finally you just blow up. God doesn't blow up. He's consistent forever. But God does have the ability to be emotional, but not irrationally emotional. Volitional, we have the ability to choose and physical, of course, because God is three in one, which we're going to discuss in a moment. Through Christ, God also was a physical being. And lastly, spiritual, of course, within us, we have the ability to be a spiritual being as the Holy Spirit is a spiritual being. When I do counseling and when I'm talking to people, I usually focus on these areas because usually if there's a problem, it means one of these areas is either being neglected or overemphasized. And so we try to keep it balanced because if we can balance these out, then we're probably doing pretty well. But when it comes to the communicable attributes of God, these are things that we share with God. And when we're considering the question of who God is, we need to realize that he has revealed himself through his word and he can be known These perfections or attributes do not describe only who he is, but rather they define who he is, and they define the very word that we use for those perfections. So keep that in mind as we proceed this morning, because we're going to wade a little bit deeper now, and we're going to talk a little bit about the Trinity. Now, as we continue in our theological discussion this morning, and attempt to come to a clearer understanding that Jesus is love, we need to wade into these deeper waters. Now, I want to look a little bit at the Trinity and see if we can kind of come to an understanding of what this is all about. Now, it's important to understand, as many of you probably know, the word Trinity is not found in the Bible. Trinal, trine, all these words that we use for representing this concept or idea is not actually found in the Bible in that word. But these words describe a very difficult uh, biblical, um, I don't know if I can say this in church, 
Um, it's, it's a biblical doctrine. Can I say that in church, doctrine? I know, I know we've gotten away from saying things like that. Can I say the word doctrine? Because the Trinity, the concept of the Trinity, is a biblical doctrine. This is something that we use in church, we talk about in church, and this concept is clearly expressed all throughout Scripture in the Old and the New Testament. In the Old Testament, we see it from the very beginning. In Genesis 1.26, it says, And then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish in the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and the earth, every creeping thing that's on the earth. This word us is referring to the plurality of the Godhead. It's also used in Genesis 3.22, 11.7. And then what about the famous Shemach? The famous Shema. In Deuteronomy 6.4, this comes from Judaism's basic confession of faith. It says, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And many of the names of God in the Old Testament are plural forms, including the name Elohim. And many times when God speaks of himself in the Old Testament, he uses plural pronouns such as we, us, ours. Now please understand what I am not saying. What I am not saying is that we serve and worship a pluralistic God. He is one God, but he's made up of three parts. But he is still only one God. As it said in Deuteronomy, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. We serve one God. But this isn't limited just to the Old Testament. Of course, the New Testament, the apostles and the scriptures affirm this idea. Three, yet one. They refer to one another so, for example, in John 14, 16, and 17, Jesus says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him. But you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. We have the Father, the Son, and the Spirit all at one time, and that's Jesus speaking. They interact with each other. A great example of this is the baptism of Jesus in Luke. It says, Now when all the people were baptized, Jesus was also baptized. And while he was praying, heaven opened and the Holy Spirit descended upon him in the bodily form like a dove. And the voice came from heaven. You are my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. This is the Father, the Spirit, and the Son, all three. They each have distinctive jobs in the process of our salvation and sanctification. And they each have distinctive names. The theological word trinity is intended to convey the idea of three divine persons existing in perfect unity as one God. But this is a divine mystery. It's not something that we can fully grasp or understand, but it's something that through faith we must believe to understand who God is and what role Jesus and the Holy Spirit play in our spiritual lives. And as I always say, the questions that I have about the Bible are the things that draw me to it. Many people are, taint, are, are, are run from the Bible because there are things in the Bible that we can't answer. But the reality is, the Trinity is a concept that I think no man could come up with. What human person could come up with a concept that we cannot fathom? If it's something that I don't understand in Scripture, it is what compels me to faith. It's what makes me believe even more in the fact that God is real and he is created and this was his idea. Three individual people but one God. And I know that you've probably heard different ways that we try to describe this, right? Water, three different modes of water, steam, solid, liquid, but still all water, which is fine, but the reality is, and this is what's crazy is, they're all the same and all different all at the same time. Like that's what's hard, like, it would be cool if we could find a way to make this work so we can think of it logically with our human minds, but we just have to trust in faith on this one. 
God is affirming it. Jesus has affirmed it. The Trinity is a biblical doctrine. So, so far this morning, we've discussed a bit about who God is through his perfections and the way he is not only described by those, but is defined by them and defines those very words we use. And now we have discussed the idea of the Trinity and how by faith we can believe three in one. Three unique persons that make up one God. Now, I want to take a look at a story from the Gospel of John and see if we can start putting some of this together. Now, please stick with me on this. I promise that we're getting there. Now, in the novel, A Christmas Story, and I'm kind of breaking one of my rules because typically I wouldn't say anything about Christmas this time of year because it's after January, but it's okay. I, I had to bring this one in. Charles Dickens, in his book, A Christmas, I said, <laughs> that's funny. I say Christmas story. That's funny. That's funny. It shows you what I like. Anyway, Christmas Carol, and I even put it in my notes, Christmas Story, too. Anyway, sorry. Those of you who know both those stories know how just different they are. (laughs) Charles Dickens starts, if you haven't read the book, this is how Charles Dickens starts his book. Marley was dead to begin with. There's no doubt whatever about that. The register of his burial was signed by the clergyman, the clerk, the undertaker, and the chief mourner. Scrooge signed it, and Scrooge's name was upon it. Changed for anything he chose to put his hand to. Old Marley was dead as a doornail. He goes on to say that this must be distinctly understood or nothing wonderful can come from that I'm about to relate. It was imperative this morning that I tried to convey to you at least these ideas and concepts of the perfections of God and the Trinity. Because if not, if we don't have that foundation, what happens next in the story of John is not going to mean anything. We had to have that foundation to get to our story this morning. Now, I'd like to read to you John 13, 1 to 20, a story that is probably familiar to many of you, and being Palm Sunday is fitting since it's at the Last Supper. This is what it said. Now, before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, the devil had already put in the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, got up from supper and laid aside his garments and taking a towel, he girded himself. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel, which, was, which he was girded, which he, it means which he was wearing. So he came to Simon Peter and he said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, what I do you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. Peter said to him, never shall you wash my feet. Jesus answered to him, if I do not wash your feet, you have no part with me. Simon Peter then said to him, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, he who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew the one that was betraying him. For this reason, he said, not all of you are clean. Really quick, I just have to say, this is a very interesting moment because this is John who's writing this, narrating for us. You guys ever notice that when we're reading the Gospels and all of a sudden you're like, and this is because of this, and all of a sudden you're like, wait, what just happened? Don't forget, these were accounts by individuals who were writing these stories. They're trying to give you a little bit of information that you might not have had if you were just reading this. Anyway, this is kind of a cool little John piece. 
So when he washed their feet, taking his garments, he reclined at the table again, and he said to them, Do you not know what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and teacher, wash your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is the one who sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed. If you do them, I do not speak of all of you. I know that ones I have chosen, but it is that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. From now on, I am telling you before it comes to pass, so that when it does occur, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me. And he who receives me receives the one who sent me. There was so much stuff going on with the story, and we could spend a lot of time trying to break this all apart. We don't have that much time this morning, so I'm going to try to whittle it down to two specific points, I think, that are being conveyed here. First is this. Jesus loves his disciples. In verse 1, it says, having loved his own who were in the world, and he loved them to the end. And when it says to the end, it means eternally, or some versions of the Bible might actually say to the uttermost. What John is telling us here is that Jesus always will love his disciples till the very end, which for the gospel of John should not surprise us, because the the gospel of John talks more about the love of Christ than any other gospel. It's one of the main themes of his gospel. Jesus loves his disciples. Well, what is a disciple? A disciple is one who's a follower or a learner. It is one who takes up the ways of another. And what does the Great Commission say? It says, go and make what? Disciples, right. If you are a follower of Christ, if you are one of his disciples... What does John say in this verse is how Jesus feels about his disciples. He loves them. He loves them to the end, to the uttermost. For eternity, Jesus loves his disciples. And you might be asking yourself, yes, Adam, but how do I know? How do I know that he loves me? And I'm glad you asked. Because the second thing that we see in this discourse, this section of Scripture, is how Jesus loves. We see in verse 5 to 20 this beautiful scene of Jesus washing the feet of his disciples, but we cannot miss the point of what's taking place. Jesus says, do as I have done for you. Jesus says that if you want to love as I have loved you, then you do as I have done for you, but be ready to get dirty. But that's not all he says. He says that it must be done so because if he does not, be, if he does not cleanse them, then, he has, then we have no part with him. So if Jesus does not cleanse us, then we have no part with him. But what is this talking about? This is Jesus referring to the cleansing that we received when we accept him and when we are baptized. We must receive him and our souls must be cleansed or we have no part with him. He then makes a comment about what's to come. He says in verse 19, From now on, I'm telling you before it comes to pass, so that when it does occur, you may believe that I am he. This is referring to the sacrifice that Jesus is about to make on the cross. Jesus is saying, I am telling you this because when I am crucified, then you will know. You will know who I am. This whole story, this whole example, is about Jesus defining love. Let me see if I can paraphrase it for you. Jesus says, he, Jesus knows it's time. Jesus knows that he's going to be led away and crucified. Before he goes, he wants to be sure that his disciples, his disciples, 
us that we understand what this is. His disciples understand what love looks like. So he picks up a basin and a rag and he washes the disciples' feet. And he says, serve others as I have served you. Love as I have loved you. But that's not all because in a few days I am going to be crucified in the single greatest act of love that the world will ever know. And then you will know who I am. What have we learned so far this morning? The Bible reveals to us that the character of God exists not by describing him, but by defining him. And in doing so, he defines the very words that we know, grace, mercy, love. He is those things, but not just God the Father. As a part of the Trinity, Jesus, the Son of God, too, defines for us what love is. Do you know what love is? I mean, really know what love is? He showed us. Love is laying down everything, everything. What is love? Love is an innocent man dying on a cross so that we could be saved. That is the definition of love. But it doesn't stop there. When we accept Christ and when we are cleansed, as he speaks of in this verse, what happens? The Holy Spirit indwells in us. In 1 Corinthians 6.19, it says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? And that you are not your own. The Holy Spirit is indwelling in us. And as a part of the Trinity, God is alive in us. Jesus is alive in us. We are the very representation of Christ to this world. And we are loving this world as Christ loved the world. Right? Or are we not? In the book Unchristian by David Kinnaman and Gabe Lyons, he says this. Christians talk about hating sin and loving sinners. But the way they go about things, they might as well call it what it is. They hate sin and they hate sinners. He goes on to say that Christians are better known for what they are against than what they are for. Can I, t can I tell you what I think? And since I don't have much more opportunity to do it, I'm going to tell you what I think. <laughs> I think that unfortunately all too often once we decide to follow Christ, we feel that we are tasked with carrying out his judgment. When we become followers of Christ, when we become disciples, we believe that it's our responsibility to take his judgment to the world. But the Bible is clear about this, guys. Judgment belongs to God. Whatever judgment we levy on someone else, the Bible says is going to be levied on us. It's not our job. It's also clear about what our job is. What is our job? What does Jesus say our job is as a disciple in the story of John? Our job is to love. To do so in the same way that he did. Showing love is sometimes dirty, messy work. And we're to do it to the end. To the uttermost. That is, of course, if we do call ourselves disciples and believe that we are followers of Christ, we should love as he loves. Now, please understand, the Bible is also clear about morality. The, the Bible also is clear about God's expectations for us, for his children. And once we become followers of Christ, our goal should be to pursue holiness. And a part of that is accountability and correction among believers. But until that time, we cannot hold people accountable to a standard they don't know. As Karl Barth says, the world does not know itself. 
It does not know God nor man, nor the relationship or the covenant between God and man. He goes on later to say, it is not until the world's eyes are open to itself that an end can be put to ignorance. In other words, we as disciples are sent into this world to show the world the very reason for its existence, and that is to bring glory to God. And if we follow the example of Christ, it is through love that this message can best be heard. Now, I'd like to try to tell a little bit of a different story now. And, and if it's okay with you, because some people, if you're not comfortable with this, it's okay. But I want you to use your imagination, so I'm going to ask you to close your eyes so we can use our imaginations. And let me tell you this story. Now, imagine you're in a small room sitting around other people. But these really aren't your people. These aren't the kind of people that you usually would hang out with. Now, I don't know every person in this room, but my guess is you know the exact kind of people that you would not normally hang out with. So just imagine you're sitting in that room and you're feeling kind of uncomfortable because these aren't the kind of people that you would hang out with. But then, to your amazement, in walks who else but Jesus, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. And he's carrying a bowl and a cloth and he walks right up to you and your heart is beating faster and faster because you're face-to-face with your Savior. And he kneels down. He begins to wash your feet, and you realize the significance of what's happening. You feel every sense of shame, guilt, fear. It's leaving you. It's all left in that moment, and all you have is perfect peace. But then he stops. He looks at you, and he says, Now you are mine, and I am yours. Now show them how much I love them. And he hands you the cloth and the bowl. And you begin to look around the room. And you look at the person who's sitting right next to you. It's a young woman with a shaved head and big earrings. And she's wearing a t-shirt that says gay pride. And you think to yourself, I'm not going to clean her feet. Then you look at the person on your other side. And it's a man who appears to be a drug addict. And he's dirty from head to toe. And you think, I'm not going to clean that guy. He's disgusting. I don't even want to touch him. And as you look around the room, you realize that there's not one single person in that room that you are willing to kneel in front of, and there's not one single person in that room that you would even want to be around. Then Jesus says to you one more time, will you love them as I love you? Will you show them how much I love them? You guys can open your eyes. Now, For some of you, perhaps, you're new to this whole faith thing, and that's cool. I mean, it's an exciting place to be. It's exciting to be a new believer. Fresh faith, new faith, it's an exciting time. But for some reason, I feel like the longer we're believers, the harder this gets to do. I don't know why. I don't know why that the longer we are believers, it seems that we should be growing in love and graciousness and kindness to others, but all too often, it seems like we just become more and more hard-hearted and judgmental. In what seems like another life at this point, before I came to this church, I used to be in a band, and I wrote a song once called Beggars. The chorus went like this. We're all beggars who found bread, but somehow this grace has gone to our heads. We've been in the light for far too long, and no one admits that something's wrong. It's time we remember how precious they are. If we take a good look, we're all just as far. We are all beggars. All of us. 
The only difference is that for some of us, we found bread. We found the bread of life. But at one time, we too were nothing more than beggars. We need to remember what it feels like to be lost, confused, hopeless, unloved. And then our hearts perhaps can be filled with the love of Christ for all of those that we live with, work with, and come into contact with. God the Father, through His Son, Jesus Christ, has shown us what defines Love. Love is defined by a willingness to lay everything down and expect nothing in return. Jesus did what he did as an act of love for you, for me, for all people. And if you have accepted Christ and his call to be a disciple, then my question is, will you love as he loves? Jesus is love. If you wonder what love looks like, look no further than his example. That is what defines true love. He is alive in us through the Holy Spirit. What are you willing to do for that love? What are you willing to do with that love? Now, I just want to give you, in closing, just a few possible next steps for you today. Maybe today you've never taken that step to become a believer, a follower of Christ, a disciple Maybe you've never taken the opportunity to come forward and say, yes, I truly want to know what this kind of love looks like. I truly want to know what this kind of love is so that I can display it to the world. Maybe that's you today. And I would invite you, if that is you, to come forward and to talk to me or Chad or any of the elders or anybody. Talk to somebody. Maybe you've made that decision and you realize, you know what? I thought I knew what love was, but when I look at Christ and I look at myself They don't really match up very well. I need to do better at loving as Christ loves. Maybe that's you today. We do want to encourage you all to continue to be praying at 426. Remember John 426. Pray every day at 426 and look for someone to invite to the Easter service next week. It's a great opportunity to introduce somebody to the greatest love they will ever experience in their entire lives. Guys, to love as Christ loves means to know what love is. To know what love is means to know who Christ is. What are you going to do with that love this week? Would you pray with me? Father God, we truly are so grateful. Truly. Because though we continue to look for things in this world that look like love, they pale in comparison to the love that you offer to us. God, every time we think we put our trust in something called love on this earth, it always disappoints. God, all too often it hurts. God, help us to realize that you have defined what love is for us. Help us to realize that not only have you defined it, but we can also be that very definition for someone else because you are alive in us. When we accept your call to become a disciple, you give us the helper. The Holy Spirit is alive in us, God, and for that we are grateful, but let us not waste that. Let us show this world what real, true love looks like and what it can be. God, help us to love without expecting any return. Help us to love as you did to the very end, eternally. Father God, just help us this week. Help us to to search our hearts. Help us to answer that question, what are we going to do with the love that you've given us? It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. We're going to go to our time of communion. If you'd stand with us. um, 
It's a great day, Palm Sunday, every time I, I can't help but think of um, Jesus Christ Superstar. My dad played that show, and um, there's a great song when, when Jesus comes into Jerusalem with the palm leaves, and I, every, every Palm Sunday I think of that song, Hosanna, Hosanna, as the king came riding on a donkey, fulfilling all those prophecies from the Old Testament, the king arriving on a donkey. And he did that, and he led himself to the cross to show us what love looks like.